This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. My entry into writing and into really falling in love with reading coincided with turning 11 or 12 or so, and soon after that, uh, with high school, with everything that adolescence brings. And when I turned 11, I believe it was 11, just after my 11th birthday, uh, my family moved from the hometown that I was born in. Uh, about 40, 50 miles away. And that experience isolated me tremendously. And I think the allowance of my parents to notice that I wasn't the most outgoing person to begin with, wasn't the most social person to begin with, they sort of allowed that isolation to uh, turn into whatever it would want to. It wasn't unhealthy, it was just there. And one of the things it did become, as I said, was writing, was uh, reading. But since it did coincide with uh, the end of grade school and the beginning of high school, what it also coincided with was, I mean, I, I already felt isolated and sort of lost after having been moved away from the place where I grew up and, and the, the friends that I knew and just the, the familiarity of everything. And you compound that with the general sense of isolation that teenagers feel and the really hardwired belief after a while that, um, that teenagers feel and Uh, adults as well, obviously, that their identities, that that one way of uh, counteracting that isolation and that feeling of not belonging is to attach yourself to some kind of identity uh, in almost a a militant uh, fashion, the fashion of of a zealot, of a convert. And So one of the things that I became attached to as I was writing, as I began writing and first began writing horror stories in the vein of Stephen King or Dean Koontz, the other stories that I started writing, which aren't necessarily in the vein of King or Koontz, even though uh, Stephen King did uh, publish a small book about a school shooting called Rage, which he 
had the clout later to take out of print because of the influence it was having on real-life school shooters. One of the things I, I began writing about outside of monsters and the supernatural were just stories about kids who took revenge for whatever reason, whatever reason it was, slights by their classmates or uh, slights by their friends, slights by their family, by their parents. Uh, the usual uh, adolescent view that uh, the usual cynicism that something is wrong and since the teenager, the child, is powerless to do or change very much about it, the, the source of what is wrong must be society, you know, that, that huge capital S society. It must be the parents. It must be the school. It must be uh, the people who are in charge. And so I wrote stories about people who had done horrific things in their schools. I never actually wrote about the violence itself that they, that they did. But many years later, what I realized was that the, the, the acting out, the, the real violence that I had empathy for and maybe saw myself in, was actually the uh, uh, the title character in Pearl Jam's song Jeremy, who kills himself at the end of the music video, who uh, walks into the classroom uh, with perfect confidence, shirtless, and tosses his uh, uh, his teacher an apple, and uh, there's a great smile on his face before he kills himself, and a great satisfaction in his in killing himself, that he is finally showing everyone who rejected him uh, what they had done to him, and that was somehow uh, a great act, uh, a great acting out, a great act of power, even though it was the power of his own death. And the other example is uh, the suicide at the end of the movie Dead Poets Society, where uh, all the all the kid wants to do is act in a Shakespeare play, I think, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, his father is uh, hyper-masculine, I guess you would say, or just somebody who doesn't get poetry. And when he finds out that his son has lied to him about being in a play, he tells him, you're going to go to military school. And what the kid does that night is go into his father's office, grab the gun, and shoot himself. And I sort of felt the same reaction to the Pearl Jam video, where you see the father rush in uh, to the study, and in the movie it's in slow motion, and I think the, uh, I think the scream of the father is, uh, is doesn't catch up with the video, or it's before or after what we actually see on screen. It's very movingly done. But to me, as a teenager at the time, um, it was perfect. It was, it was again, the same thing as with Jeremy. It was, look what you, look what you did. Look what your rules did. I hope you enjoy what you did to me. So it was something to realize that after many years, that even though I was writing stories about perpetrators who committed violent acts upon others, 
the real ones that I uh, felt akin to were the ones who uh, committed acts of violence upon themselves. And this is all uh, perhaps too long of an introduction to say that when Columbine happened two years or so after I graduated from high school, it was um, it was a real uh, there, but for the grace of God, go I. It was uh, a very strange moment uh, to see this happening and then to see it blamed on trench coats or Marilyn Manson when by then I was already a, a, a late teenage poet uh, wearing a trench coat myself and laughing at the idea that it was some sort of uh, uniform for uh, people who are going to shoot up their school. But, uh, but it took some time to uh, not only to grow up, I guess, but, uh, and even though I wrote these, actually I wrote these poems, uh, after my daughter was born, perhaps it was that, uh, that got me to write these poems about Columbine. I really don't know if they're any good. Um, I wrote them after reading Dave Collins' book, Columbine, and, um, uh, what is her name? I want to look it up right now to make sure that I get it right. Uh, the book is called A Mother's Reckoning. And I always forget things just when I want to say them. Uh, Mother's Reckoning by Sue Klebold, who was the mother of Dylan Klebold. Uh, if anyone has the stomach or the spirit or the interest to learn about Columbine, those are the books to read, at least for me. I'm sure there are other good ones, too. But they were the ones that gave me these poems, and uh, I'll just read them. Uh, the first two are about uh, Sue Klebold, and the first is called The Mother at the Salon, and it is about uh, when Sue Klebold went to get her hair done. Uh, before her son's funeral and she realized or was told I can't remember which I think she realized later that one of the victim's mothers had just been to the same salon for the same reason to get her hair done before her child's funeral and this is the mother at the salon she was at the salon hours after another mother sat in the same seat the victim's mother, she a perpetrator's. Yet it wasn't warmer or more desolate to sit where her seeming opposite had sat, both readying for a funeral or both seeking what only old habit could give. Both were covered in the same plastic cape and felt the same hairdresser's hands on their necks, and neither was redeemed or condemned by circumstance. Hair fell or didn't, the way it always had, and the old chair lifted or spun their same weight, mourning or guilt weighing or releasing them, not an inch from what was all inside. And the second poem about Sue Klebold uh, is about 
what she did with her son's things uh, when she was allowed back into their house and what she, how she felt about her son's body. And as she says in her book, how she could hate what he did and find no reason in what he did and not understand how the good life she thought she had been giving to him led to this, um, how she still loved him. And I think she even says, I, I couldn't find a way to put this in the poem. There might not be a way to put it into a poem. Uh, she even says that perhaps the most loving thing she ever did was when she heard that there was a shooting and then she heard that her son was there that she hoped that he would kill himself, if only to save the lives of others that he uh, wouldn't then have the chance to kill. So this is the mother at home. The day of the shooting, she packed quickly to get to a friend's house before the press did. There were two duffel bags she couldn't find, and they would show up later in footage from the cafeteria, weighed down with bombs. For months, she left his hair in the bathroom brush, in the pile of his stubble in the razor, and would not wash her son's scent from his clothes. As if he were a newborn, his body, alone at the coroner, was a horror since he'd always gone to the doctor with her. The cold body of her boy haunted her, and this only ceased when he was cremated, the only way she could make him warm again. She went to where he killed himself, to where he and his friend had killed so many. She went to that library and knelt to the carpet that had caught him when he fell, her monstrous son that she still so loved, the one whose conscience had withered away, the one who had claimed the most miserable existence in the history of time for himself in her house, daily with her, the one he should have taken too, the one who gave her the same diary she now laments into or remembers, the fourth grade boy at his origami, she beside him with some breakfast tea watching, the same awe as at four months or four years, this business of an independent life she was meant to guide, but also let go of. That morning, as he folded shapes and creased the paper into some animal, his hands themselves were like hummingbirds, quick and confident in their creation. The same hands that would kill or let one go, the same hands of hate and love in his journal, the same hands of paralyzing self-loathing that sent him to the carpet, the same hands. And I'm not really even sure how to read these. Um, or to justify them as poems, um, how plain they are, but that is, that is them. Uh, this next poem is called The Two of Them, and 
I have a lot more of these, and, and, and many of them end up uh, uh, with, a, with an outside voice sort of uh, criticizing them and sneering at the, at the shooters, and this is uh, the one of them that I think is worth reading. The two of them, they grew up with Waco. Weird religion rolled over by tanks and set on fire. They grew up with Oklahoma City. White guy rage and middle American bombs and a scalloped building seen from overhead. Some cross-section into safe offices, safe no more, and blown out to the street below. They may have seen their school on TV that day, the weird mirror of someone looking in. Cameras and eyes now there because of them. Fame. They knew, between the boredom and pleading, between someone begging and the dullness even of killing, that someday for sure tourists would come just to point at the place, that even in sympathy people were sick, not as bad as them, but pointing the way. But their desire for fame was still shit, the lasting impression, their own cliché, just as dumb as the movies are dumber. So smart in your own mind, so Superman, but all of it no more than, look at me. Imagine the vacuum of that anger, like how the library they killed themselves in, the library they killed so many in, was demolished and left only as air, so the atrium below would rise up, like the empty ground of Waco or the voided Oklahoma offices. The same hollowness they saw as boys, boys or teenagers in front of the TV, hearts maybe not yet persuaded by power, and still moved by the world's mourning why. And the last of them is called uh, Infatuation. And this is about uh, a girl that Dylan Klebold mentions in his journals, and which uh, in the books that I've read that I mentioned, uh, her name is blacked out uh, and uh, we don't know her identity. But being someone who felt very alone as a teenager and who desperately wished for some sort of romantic connection in high school. Uh, I felt for, uh, for Dylan in this, and especially in the idea that obviously as a counterfactual, we'll never, we'll never know if he had received affection from this girl or someone else, or if he'd been able to show his own affection toward her or someone else. Maybe this would not have happened, or at the very least, maybe it would have not involved him. So I feel very close to this poem, but again, I have no idea what to make of them outside of my own mind. I, my critical faculties for these things uh, uh, do not work anymore when I read these. This is called Infatuation. She'd be nearing middle age by now, the girl all over Dylan's journal, 
whose name the books all black out. The girl no one wants to be, loved by him. The boy she would never write about herself unless she loved nervousness and decay or was taken in by weakness and doubt, her head anxious to fantasy by the thought of what his touch would be or his secrets. She'd be nearing middle age by now, not knowing, it's assumed she never knew, what her presence every day at school meant to the one who wanted to blow it up, the one whose face and body at least gave him a giving pain, a generous yearning, a buried pleasure of what love could bring in between plans of pipe bombs and planes. It's not clear they ever even spoke, and he no doubt would have been unable to, a girl not in his head but in real life, who also had every frustration and wished for the warmth of a similar mind. She's in her house now, or a traffic jam, and when she remembers the shooting, it's two kids she didn't know that make her sick. She doesn't know that the way her face still moves, or how she gets in or out of the car, or how it is that she begins to speak. She doesn't know what any of these meant for the one whose last weakness was for her. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.